Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. How many of you are familiar with this chapter? When you say 1 Corinthians chapter 13, how many of you know, oh, I know what that chapter is? Just about everyone here, right? Well, let's go through and let's read the verses and, and then let's go through them together. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when, we, when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection, as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. As we've been going through this epistle of 1 Corinthians, it's been rather brutal. Paul has come down on this group of believers in Corinth rather hard. I mean, he has rebuked them for their foolish ways of thinking, professing themselves wise. They, they acted as fools. He dealt with their spiritual immaturity and how they were not to the place. They were as babes that still needed just milk. They could not grasp the full depths of the things that he needed to speak to them. They quarreled with each other. They judged one another wrongly, but they didn't judge when they should have judged. They allowed sin to dwell in the midst of them and didn't deal with it. They misrepresented the Lord's table. They were misusing and misunderstanding spiritual gifts. All these things were taking place and then Paul just starts giving them this, you've been doing this, you've been doing this, you guys aren't doing this, you should be doing this. And all of a sudden we come to this oasis in chapter 13. And it's almost like we, we are in a different world. And Paul moves from talking about, you guys didn't do this and it would be better if you didn't even meet together, you guys are so messed up. He starts off with, if I it all of a sudden becomes very introspective. So this is no longer about all the things that you guys are doing wrong. Paul takes this to heart and he says, 
if I. Because love is very personal. It has to be something that we look at within ourselves. Love is something that we cannot force anyone else to do. Although we all tried when we were in junior high school to get that guy or that girl to, to love us. Except for you, heaven. Uh, but we found out you can't make someone love you. No, when it comes to love, it's no longer something I can talk about in this personal way to others. It's if I. It's this recognition of self and where I am. And now comes the enlightening and the just awareness, the illumination of really how important this is. And when I'm comparing myself to this love, it has to be about me. It has to be personal. Just curious, when you first heard or read this passage of Scripture, any of you have a recollection of what that meant to you? How you thought of it? Were you overwhelmed? Were you curious? What, what were the things that went through your mind when you heard 1 Corinthians or read 1 Corinthians 13 for the first time? There, there is something that is so unique about this passage and the idea of love. You know, there is something that I believe is just divine. And, you know, like you mentioned, you know, it awakens something in you or hearing the words always or the impact of what it is and what I'm not. This, this chasm of what love really is and who I am, it is powerful. It is overwhelming. It is divine. The word that's used here, many of you are aware, is the word agape. And the word agape was a word that was not used regularly back in that time. It was known, it was uh, written down and used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. But in Greek writings, the word agape didn't show up very often. And the idea of the word is kind of the Christian church adopted it and made it its own. Kind of developed this idea of what it is and they adopted it to designate a love differing from the other loves that were more common. The, the love of Eros or Philia, the, the loves that people were aware of. And the idea of this love was that it was to be marked by the person giving this love. It was to represent that person and it was to be selfless. And so here comes this new definition and, and a new definition is needed. Kind of like what we talked about when we're going through First John, how life needed a new definition. You know, the life that came into the world. Well, how do you explain to people who think they have life what real life is like? How do you explain to people what love is when they think they have love. And then we come to this definition and it leaves us all just saying, wow, this is much more than what I have. And I think all of us read this and have this overwhelming sense of 
this is what I want. This is the kind of love that I want in my life, that I want to come out of my life. This is a love that's genuine, that has substance to it, that is worth reaching for. And so Paul stops all this talk about, and he's going to continue on with the gifts, and we need to frame this chapter in order to understand it fully. The Corinthian church was very boastful in where they were at, in their relationship with God by their gifts, by the things that they saw as making themselves spiritual. And we've touched on some of these prophecy, teaching, gift of tongues, and we're going to touch on these things a little bit more, actually a lot more in the next chapter. That's why I'm not focusing too much on it last week or even here. They had this sense of, we know God, look at what I do. I know God because I can prophesy. I know God because I can speak in tongues. I know God because I have this gift of knowledge or can do miraculous things. When I pray, oh man, do I move people. And Paul is dealing with this mindset of these people and he stops short and he says, if I speak in tongues, you guys boast about, well, if I speak of tongues of men and of angels, but don't have love, I am a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And, and this idea is a, a piece of metal that's uncut without purpose. I don't know if you guys ever like to watch that show, How It's Made. It's a great show. And if, I don't know if you've ever seen that one where they make cymbals, how they make cymbals and how they get this brass and how they cut it and how they just put it on this machine and they form it. And it's got to be just perfect so that when they hit it, it resonates and it rings. And that's why it's got all these little ridges in it and it's just something that has tone to it. And the idea is you can do this, you can speak in tongues, but if you don't have love, you're like a hunk of metal. You're making noise, not music. You're just a noise. And it's that symbol or a gong, clanging symbol, has the idea of it's a trash can lid. It's not a symbol. In other words, there is no beauty in the sound of it. It's just noise. And he talks about the second one, prophecy. You know, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and he goes to the extreme. Because, I mean, let's face it, who could know all you know, mysteries and all knowledge, Jesus. But everyone else falls short. And he says, if I had prophecy and had the ability to proclaim and understand God in the future and understood all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have faith besides this prophecy, I have knowledge, I have faith so that I can move mountains. In other words, I can do the miraculous, but have not love, I am nothing. Take each of these things that you want, that you boast in, and take them to the highest heights that you can imagine to do the most impossible and incredible things if you had that to its nth degree but didn't have love. It would be worthless. And I love how he brings it. He says, if I had these things, I am Nothing. Not, 
I'm not very useful. Not, well, I, I'm really not as good as I should be. I profit a little bit. He says, I am nothing. And we take this and we look at who Jesus was. Who had this kind of faith, this kind of knowledge, this kind of prophetic ministry. And what made this of substance was that he had love. And so we see that you cannot have the power of God, the usefulness of God, if you do not have the love of God. He goes on and he says in verse 3, if I give all I possess to the poor, not just 10%, all of it, I give everything I have to the poor and surrender my body to the flames to be martyred, but have not love, I gain nothing. It profits nothing. You know, the idea is if I give these things to God, then it's, a, it's kind of credited to my account. If I give my life to the Lord, God's going to look and smile on me and say, you gave it all, but if I don't have love, I gain nothing. My offering is meaningless. My, my life loses its value because it is absent of what really matters. And that's love. And we start hearing this echo, I am nothing, I am nothing, I gain nothing. And we have to ask ourselves, well, do then I have love? Because if I don't have love, I don't want what I give to be useless. I don't want the, the gifts that I try and attain to be worthless. If I don't have love, then what's the purpose? Do I have love? Or am I taking stock in what I do and not why I do the things I do. In other words, is it about me? Or is it because I care? How do I know if I have love? Well, now we get to the definition. Now is the difficult part. See, what makes you spiritually significant? Is it because you're charismatic? You can speak well because you know truth. You have this ability to, to speak clearly, do miraculous things. You're able to give to charity and help and do miraculous things. No, none of that matters. Without love, you are spiritually insignificant. What is love? Verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. This word is in complete harmony with the character of God. 1 John 4, 7, it says, Beloved, let us... Love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. Verse 8, it says, He that loves not does not know God, because God is love. God is love. And so this word love 
is giving us a representation of who God is. It's in harmony with the character and person of God himself. And that's why Jesus said, everything that the Father says to me is what I speak. What I see the Father do, that's what I do. What I hear, I speak. What I see, I follow. I don't work and act on my own. Everything that God does is what I do. And we are to be as Christ in this world. It is an example. So as God loves and as Jesus represented that love, fleshed it out for us to see, it's our example. And these lists of things that he gives here are, are incredible. Love is patient. Oh my goodness. Patience. It has the idea to bear injustice without anger or despair. See, it's not just tolerate someone. Put up with them. It's deal with injustice towards you without being angry, without despairing. It has an infinite capacity for endurance. Love is patient. You're not affected by those things that irritate you. We all just laugh. <laughs> because we know what we're supposed to do. We've heard it so many times. We're, we're supposed to see where these things and how we match up to what this list is. And we all fall short, but we all know it's right. We all know that's what we need to do. And, and I've got to tell you, God wants to work this in you, and he is. Whether you like it or not, sometimes, if, if you belong to him, he's going to work in your life to produce love. Why? Because without it, you are worth nothing. Without it, you gain nothing. And if he can't produce this in us, we have no value because we do not represent our Father. So God does things like Gives us children. <laughs> or puts us at work someplace where everyone is a little ornery. And he's whittling within our lives, transforming us and making us to be someone else. Someone who represents him. And I got to tell you, children were a big whittling factor in my life, in our life. Had twins at the get-go and two others shortly after that. Four kids. You know, if you didn't have patience, you'd be in jail for murder. It was one of those things. It's like, oh my gosh, you know. Why did you do that? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? I don't know. If you don't know, who knows? You know, you're the one who did it. But the idea of bearing those things without anger or despair. And just being able to say, you know what? I need to look past the injustice, the wrong. And I need to have a capacity to endure it. And the next one he goes on and he tells us is kind. Kind is a type of goodness or courtesy. Just show courtesy. Love is generous in this. It has the ability to be good, again, even when injustice is brought towards you. It does not envy. 
Here's another one. You know, and some will resonate with you more than others as far as there's a big chasm between me and this one. You know, the idea of envy is a selfish desire for what another person has or being displeased with another person's success. Someone gets promoted who shouldn't. And you growl, you're upset with them. Someone gets, you know, ever have those people, it seems like everything goes good for them. You know, they get the deal. They're the ones who walk in the store when there's that one sale, that one item that is, you know, 85% off, today only, and one left, and they walk in and by accident get it, you know. And you can wait up all night and sleep overnight at the front of Best Buy hoping to get it, and you still don't. But so-and-so, they just go in and they get all the good deals. Life just goes well for them. And it angers you. Why? Because you're envious. And you see what this is showing and exposing is our true self and in the light of what love really is. And so as we start seeing the shortcomings that we have in these areas, what we are doing is seeing the character of God and seeing our own character. And we are to look at the, the difference and try and match up to what God wants us to be. We're always pushing ourselves to, to not be envious, not to have selfish desires for these things, but to care as God cares. It does not boast, brags, a person who, who sounds their own praise. And we never say we do that, but it's easy to do that. I, I love when you're in a, a group of people and someone starts telling a story. And it depends on what the story it could be fishing, you know, it could be getting your wisdom teeth out. It, it could be anything. Everyone's got to top that story. Oh, you caught a fish that big? Well, let me tell you, when I was over in Alaska, we caught a fish. It could barely fit in the boat because it was there, and I didn't have a fishing pole. I just had to use a coat hanger. And, you know, it's like you, you make up this story. Why? Because I want to boast in these things about myself. And we like to make those things known. Yeah, so-and-so was in need, and I gave him a ride to church. Yeah, I do that pretty regularly. Yeah, I like to help out the needy. That's what I do. In fact, here, you need some money. Let me give you some money. You know, you tell everyone and show them. This is what we do. And it has this idea of boasting, bragging, sounding your own praise. He goes on and he says, it is not proud. Pride. It's an inflated... Self-exaltation. And it really means to puff up. It has the idea of those puffer fish. You think you're bigger, better than you really are. And I think pride is at the root of all of our sin. Pride is what made the devil a devil. And it will make devils of us all if we're not careful. Pride is the ultimate anti-God state of mind. It's about me, not God. And once we start comparing ourselves to others, be sure pride is involved. And it doesn't matter where you are, it is potential to become a cancer in your life. Pride will blind you to what God wants and needs to do in you. And usually it comes in the area of comparing. I do this better than them. 
you know, when I was doing music regularly and go to worship conferences, you have this person goes up on stage and they start doing that. And you, so many times I'd catch myself, I can play better than him. I could do that. What's so special about them? And it's like, what's so special about you? Just this attitude. There's a joke, how many guitar players does it take to screw in a light bulb? And it's 100, one to do it, 99 to say, I could do that. You know, it's just that attitude of, yeah, what's so special about you? And, and pride has this kind of inflated self attitude about it. It is not rude. That means it does nothing that is disgraceful, dishonorable, or indecent. And again, we start thinking these things and how many times are we rude? And it doesn't matter to who, because it's easier to be rude to the people who are above us at work. I'm not going to be rude to my boss, but my wife, my children. You see, again, it's connected to just a self as opposed to selfless. It is not self-seeking. I mean, selfish. Uh, love cannot exist with selfishness. They're, they're exclusive. If you're selfish, then you're not loving. Its chief motivation is for itself. That's selfishness. And you can't love and be selfish at the same time. How many times are we selfish? And these are things that play out, especially in marriages, in relationships. What about me? It's my turn kind of a thing. You know, I've been nice to you for four days in a row. I think it's time for you to be nice to me. And, you know, we don't, we say we don't keep score, but boy, we have it in our mind. You know, how come I'm the one always giving back rubs? Why don't I get a back rub? You know, those kinds of things. We, we, we just kind of keep this tally in our heads, you know. And the whole idea is it's not self-seeking. It's not about you. It's about giving. That's what love is supposed to be. It's not easily angered. It means it's not touchy or hypersensitive, and it doesn't take offense. This is one that resonates with me and just how I need to be in situations that are upsetting or when I feel like I've been slighted or someone's dissed me in some way. I feel like I'm being taken advantage of, not being appreciated, and you start getting angry. Well, that's not love. You're not, you're not showing the character of God. And I think we all know people that are hypersensitive, people that you have to walk on eggshells around them because you don't want to hurt their feelings, because if you hurt their feelings, they're not going to come to church anymore. Well, I'm not going to church, or I'm going to go to a different church where you know, people aren't so mean to me. It's like... How was I mean to you? Well, you didn't call and tell me that church you know, was this Thursday. Well, you know, it's every Thursday. I don't have to call you. Well, you didn't call me. And you're just super sensitive. And that might be an exaggeration, but you guys all know people who are very hypersensitive, who get their feelings hurt easily. And you think, well, they're just a sensitive person. Well, they're oversensitive. Okay, there's someone who is... Easily angered. There's someone who gets easily put out of place. We think of anger as being gets mad, but it's someone who has this ability to be put out of place. It doesn't have to show up in wrath. It just has to show up in being bent 
out of shape. And that's not what love is. And right after that, keeps no record of wrongs. There goes the back rubs. Okay, you know, it's like no record of wrong. You don't add things up. You don't have this idea of assigning evil attentions or motives to things. I'm not going to keep a record of the wrongs that have been done to me. And that's a real hard one because we have memory. But there's a difference between knowing and keeping a record. See, keeping a record means you go to your books and you bring it out when it's necessary. Having a memory, you can't stop what you think about. But you can stop if you bring it out of the books. See what I'm saying? It's like, what about that time when you did this? Boom. There's my record of it. Happened on July 17th, 1982. It's there in the books. I have a record of that wrong. Now, you might have been devastated and hurt on July 17th, 1982. But you don't have to keep a record of it. You remember it, but you don't have to look it up and you don't have to dwell on it. And a lot of these things, well, let me finish before I talk about that. Does not delight in evil. Does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. These are combined together. You find no pleasure or satisfaction when others are found guilty or fail. But you love when the truth comes out, and love and truth are kind of twins in the household of faith. Truth both exposes and illuminates, but it's towards God. In other words, I don't rejoice when someone fails, but I love seeing someone grow towards the truth in the Lord. Now, I, I've been hurt by people, like you. People have done things that really have gotten to me. And then I hear through the grapevine, did you hear what happened to so-and-so? Yeah, their, their business is really struggling. Or their health is failing them. And I've had to catch myself going, ha, ha, ha. it's justice, God, it's justice for when they hurt me. And you see, that's not love. That's not God. I don't rejoice in seeing the failure of anybody if I am like God. I rejoice in the truth. In other words, I want, I want God to expose what needs to be exposed so that I can move towards him. But I'm not going to delight in someone else's failure or their calamity. And I'm not going to keep this record of wrong. I'm not going to have this vengeance mentality towards these people. And then he goes on, he says, it always protects, the idea of protects is, is to throw a cloak of silence over what is displeasing in another person. I'm going to shroud what is ugly about someone in silence. I'm going to cover it. I'm going to protect it. How many times has God done that with us? Has God shrouded us with silence in the things that are displeasing to him? He doesn't expose us. He doesn't try and humiliate us. He covers us. 
and always protects. That's what it has in mind, this covering with silence. It always trusts. That means it's eager to believe the best, desiring to give another chance. It doesn't mean it's foolish, but you want to hope in someone. You want to give them the benefit of the doubt. You want to see them succeed. You, you have hope that they can. And the idea of always hope, it means that it never gives up. Never gives up. But what if I've been burned seven times? Is that enough, Lord? No, Peter, 70 times seven. You always have to hope. Now, it doesn't mean that you're blind to what's happening. It doesn't mean that you, well, this guy, you know, he's got a problem with drinking and he asked for money and I gave him money and went out and got drunk, but he asked me money again, but I always hope he's not going to spend it on alcohol. It doesn't mean you give the guy money all the time, but you always hope that he's going to get out of it and you're willing to invest in that person even when they failed and they failed and they failed. How you invest might change, but you invest with the hopes that God can change this person. I, I want to see you get better. Oh my gosh, God has done that with each of us. He's done that with each of us. And he's doing it with us still. You know, we're good at covering up the, the shortcomings in our life. We're good at hiding those areas that are humbling to be known. But God knows, and God still has hope for you. He still desires to see you do better and always perseveres. It's a stable reaction to people and events that do not merit the patience. In other words, you're not moved by the circumstances. You're going to stay. You're going to hold your ground and push through these things. Now, love is not, as we look at this list, we don't see the idea of a feeling really portrayed here. These are all things that you do, you hope, you are patient, you don't think evil, you're not proud, you, you don't boast, you're not rude. These, these are more than just emotions. In fact, emotions is what we equate love to and it's little to do with what love actually is. The emotions, the feelings come after the actions. In other words, even if I don't feel like I want to be nice to you, I need to be nice to you. Even though I don't feel like I should be patient, I have to be patient to you, with you. Why? Because that's what love is. But I don't feel patient. What do you do? That's not a reason to stop loving. In fact, this is showing that in spite of all these things, love is to persist in a behavior that is consistent with the character of God even when you don't feel like it. And I can't tell you how vital that is to have in our relationships, especially in our marriages. Because there is going to be a time when you are let down by the person you have put your life's trust in. Where they're going to say something that's cutting. They're going to do something that's hurtful. Where you're going to stand there and say, oh my gosh, this isn't what I want. I don't like where I'm at. I wish I was somewhere else. 
And the idea and the character of what love really is is going to have to be what you hold on to in spite of where you find your emotion and your feeling. Otherwise, guess what? Every few years, you're going to get married again. It didn't work out for me. Why not? Well, they were insensitive. Oh, so you weren't forgiving. You kept a record of wrongs. Oh. Well, I, I didn't like them, you know, because they didn't take care of me the way I wanted to take care of. Oh, so you were self-seeking. In other words, you were concerned more about yourself than really about them. You see, somewhere along the line, if you are basing on what you're going to get out of it, you don't know what love is. You are not experiencing the love that God is trying to present to us, and you will fail. And it will be devastating to you. And you probably know, I know, I know of a number of people, a number of marriages where I see that this is exactly the case. Where I was hurt and I quit. Well, I wanted to get more, so I left. And the idea of what love is was missed. And the, the sad thing is that those same people will read this and go, oh yes, this is beautiful. Well, were you patient? Were you kind? Did you envy? Did you boast? Were you proud? Were you rude? Were you self-seeking? Were you easily angered? Did you keep a record of wrongs? Did you delight in the evil, rejoice in the truth? Or, or were you always protecting, always trusting, always hoping, also always persevering? It challenges us. And it's meant to challenge us because... We're talking about a love that's divine. And we find ourselves being human. And God saying, I have something more for you, but it's going to take you some effort to get to where I want you to be. And you have to be willing to give of yourself to go there. And so here's this description of what love is. And in verse 8 he says, it never fails. And then he gives this contrast. And now he's dealing again with the characteristics of the Corinthian church. Where there's prophecies, they're going to cease. Where there's tongues, they will be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it will pass away. All these things that you guys are, are boasting your spirituality in, those things are going to come to an end. Those things, in comparison to what love is, what is perfect, they're temporary. They're useful, but they're imperfect. He goes on and he says, verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. Those who are only looking at the physical things or just born in this physical way, they will only anticipate death. But we who are spiritually alive anticipate life, more life. In other words, you guys think it's all about here and now but there's more coming. What you are anticipating, what you are focusing on one day is going to die. But this love that is connected to God is going to go on forever. It is something that is going to keep on going. These gifts, however useful they are, they in a sense have an expiration date. These gifts that you are utilizing, they have an expiration date. That date is when Christ returns. Love does not have an expiration date. 
it keeps on going. And so he's trying to connect them and, to, and us to something that is eternal, something that is strong, something that lasts, something, again, that is divine. And he goes on and he gives more description. Verse 11, I love this. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I responded like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. The idea of a child is, is that of incomplete understanding, undeveloped and immature. And he says, that's how we are now. We're immature. We don't see things quite right. In fact, his second illustration goes on. We see but a poor reflection, or it might say through a glass darkly. And the idea is there's a distortion. It's riddled as in a mirror. And then we shall see face to face. There is a contrast between what we are experiencing and the reality that we will see. As he says, I know, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And his point here is to show us that there is something that we are looking forward to. And that our understanding right now is insufficient. I loved when my kids were small because it was so easy to, to tease them and to do things with them. I remember telling one of my boys that I was Batman. I, and I had him convinced I was Batman. I said, yeah, I'm Batman. And he's like, really? I go, yeah. You know when I go everywhere during the day, you know, I'd go to work? Yeah, I'm going to the Batcave. I got it. And, and he went and told his neighbor he told the neighbor kids, he goes, my dad's Batman. And his neighbor kid, again, they're about six years old, he goes, wow, your dad's Batman, that's so cool. And then he ran and told his dad, yeah, Daniel's dad is Batman. And he goes, okay, yeah, sure he is, you know. They were immature in their thinking, and I figured, give me some brownie points with them, you know. Maybe they'll listen to me and go to bed when it's time. After all, I'm Batman. They're just willing to believe but have a lack of understanding. I read this quote about a child. They asked a child, what is love? And the kid said, well, I think you get shot with an arrow, but then it's less painful afterwards. <laughs> There's just an incomplete understanding. And Paul is saying, that's where we're at. We, we don't see things fully. And that's why this list that he gives us of what love is, is so difficult. It's, we're seeing riddles. We're seeing through this glass darkly. We're seeing through this mirror that's distorted. And it's a poor reflection. The best I can understand it. And I read this and I'm like, oh, wow. That, that's a lot higher than I was reaching. That's a lot greater than what I was... It's trying to attain. And Paul's saying, yeah, we're immature. We're just kids. We, we don't fully understand. It's a poor reflection. Jesus told his disciples in John 13, a new command I give you. And again, we, wanna, we, we already know this, but think about it. Jesus is saying, there's something new I want to tell you. What is it? 
love one another. Oh, we love each other. No, there, there's something new I'm trying to tell you. Love one another as I have loved you. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Remember, a disciple was to be an image of his rabbi. A person was to look at the disciple and be able to tell, oh, your rabbi is so-and-so. That's why they saw the disciples and they could tell they had been with Jesus. And Jesus is saying, I I've got something new to disclose to you. You need to love each other the way I love you. And by this, all men will know you belong to me. This is new. This isn't the way you've loved before. This is love that comes from God. This is divine. This is agape. This is what God gives. And it's totally new. And if you love one another, they will see me in you. They will know you belong to me. And that's what this love does. It connects us to the very heart of God. And he ends this in verse 13, and now these three remain. So these are the, the pillars of faith, the pillars of our belief. Faith, hope, and love. Faith is the essentials to salvation. It is what we need to believe in God, to trust in God. Hope is necessary to live. We live for what we have not yet seen. He's going to talk about that more in chapter 15, how our hope isn't in what is temporary, but what is eternal. We need that hope and love which is connected to the very heart of God and out of all these, the greatest is love. That means this is the foundation of all of them. This is more important. Without this, none of them work. Without this, you're that noise. Without this, everything you do is meaningless unless you have God's love now, real quick application in closing. The Corinthian church, a lot of problems. There is dissensions, arguing with one another who's better. I belong to Peter, I belong to Paul, I belong to Apollos. They had uh, skewed ideas of, of what was right and wrong. They allowed sin to be in the church and didn't deal with it. They allowed their freedoms to be stumbling for other people. They were blind to the needs of others. He said, it would be better if you didn't meet at all. Your, your getting together is doing more harm than good. Why? Because you are not accurately representing who Jesus is. And he comes to the heartbeat here in the middle of, of this book, well, towards the end of this book, and he tells them, this is what it's about. It is about It's the greatest thing there is. It is what you need to be who you are supposed to be. It is what we need to be who Christ has called us to be. It is love. Ask yourselves the question as you go through this list, where do I fall short? Then ask yourself, what do I need to change? 
and realize that it's not about how you feel, but it's about what you do. In C.S. Lewis' book, Mere Christianity, when he talks about love, he says that those who obey God, those who say, well, I don't know how I should love God or, or what that looks like, he says, ask if God would like me to do it and then do it, and you will find that love is now a part of your life. In other words, ask if this is something that God wants me to do. And if it is, do it. And let God deal with the emotion. Let God deal with those feelings. Let us deal with the actions that we have to deal with. And you will find this a necessity in your life, in your relationships with your family, in your relationships with your friends, in the relationships with your spiritual community. If you do not embrace these things, you will cause division, you will be divisive, and you will have to leave, you will have to, you will be fractioned, it will cause a lot of problems unless you understand and recognize these things in yourself. Well, that's it. Any questions? Any thoughts on just this passage and what love is? Anyone have a problem in areas maybe of forgiveness? How do you forgive and love when you remember? I share that because that's something I always get in counseling. You know, well, I love this person, but I can't. I have a hard time forgiving them, and I can't forget. Anyone have that problem? No? Okay. That's why. Um, remember that forgiveness doesn't mean you like what was done. And nowhere in the idea of love doesn't mean, I love that it says, is not easily angered. Because as you remember, Jesus got angry. But it wasn't easy. There is a righteous indignation. There's a righteous anger. There are things you can get upset about. But it doesn't get there easy. You don't, you know, flip your lid. There is a purpose with the anger. And so if someone hurts you, you can be angry with what they've done. If someone stole from you, I can be angry that they stole from me. I don't have to like what they've done. The idea of forgiveness in loving someone is I want what is better for them. And that has the idea of not wanting evil or to, to delight in evil, but rejoice in the truth. In other words, the truth is I want them to do better. I want them to change. It's up to them if they do or not. And that doesn't mean I'll give them something or make myself vulnerable to be ripped off again. I want them to change. I hope they will change. I will not stop trying to see that change take place in them. But it doesn't mean, oh, oh well, you stabbed me in the back. No biggie. It hurts. You don't have to like what they did. You just have to want them to better. Think of there's someone that you love and want to see them do better consistently. Do you know who that is? Yourself. Jesus said, love others as you love yourself. How do you love yourself? I want to be a better person. 
And I'm very patient with myself. I get angry with myself. I get, you know, upset sometimes. I'm so stubborn. But I always want to see myself do better. I, I always have hope that I'm going to do better. Change. Love others as you love yourself. In other words, you want them to do better as well. You're patient with them, just like you have to be patient with yourself. And that's the idea. We're kind of that example. Well, let's pray. Father, I pray that your truths here of what love is would pierce our hearts and our deficiencies and illuminate the areas where we need to grow. And Father, thank you for being so patient. Thank you for having such hope for us, for enduring with us, for not keeping a record of wrongs for us, for not dealing with us in a rude way, God, for desiring to see good in our lives, continually motivating us. And Father, you have banked everything on love. And it has changed us. We love you because you first loved us. It is your goodness that leads us to repentance. It is this wall of goodness, kindness, mercy that humbles us and awakens within us what we really were created to be. So, Father, I pray that you would continue awakening that within us and that we would continue by your Holy Spirit to pursue you and these things see them take place in our lives. And God, I just pray for the relationships here in this room. Marriages, friendships, families. Lord, this chapter addresses the most essential things of every relationship we have. May we take it to heart. Father, may we not have blind eyes when it comes to ourselves or become proudful. May we see ourselves clearly. And Lord, may we submit ourselves to what you've presented here. And may our lives be better because of it. We do pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.